All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Kente Corner, your favorite Georgetown Hoyas basketball podcast. I'm Bobby Bancroft, and if it's Monday night, you know I am here with Howie Wachtel and John Hawks. We have the New York and the Florida Hoya. What we do not have anymore, guys, is the Gate City Hoya. What's up? What's up, Bobby? What's good, guys? That's not a rhetorical question. I legitimately want to know what is remotely good about this program right now. Well, I think if we're going to talk about what's up, we have to let the listeners into an incredible situation. Uh, Howie has a bear in his neighborhood right now. I do. I uh, <laughs> woke up this morning. There was a black bear on my front lawn. Just walking around patio furniture, weaving its way in between cars, and then just jogging down the street. <laughs> it then promptly climbed up a tree where it stayed for over eight hours, and it, it recently just went down the tree, and I've got cops shining their brights in front of my house, and it looks like they've, they've, they've moved on a little bit, but there's a bear somewhere out there in the middle of a global pandemic shortly after Mac McClung transfers for Georgetown. I really think this is an end-of-days situation. I think the important question that we all want to know, Howie, is did it look like the bear could play the four? <laughs> Patrick Ewing is a big man coach, but is he a, is he a bear coach? I don't know. Well, guys, um, you know, usually we focused on on this podcast, the Hoyas, Madness and sadness brackets, and we have some of that later for the listeners. But even though uh, Andrew and Ben and myself went into great detail on Mac McClung leaving the Hoyas, I think there's some unfinished business that we can get to on our weekly podcast. And I think we should first start with the fans that are out there now. You know, obviously it's. He leaves. You, I think there's. I'm not sure what the stages of um, grief are, right? But <laughs> a lot of the fans, it seems like, are in the stage now where, well, you know, we didn't really need him anymore, or this, you know, this whole drama was too much for me, and I'm out of here. How much of that do you think is legitimate, and is this just sort of the normal emotion cycle that people go to when one of your best players leaves unexpectedly? Yeah, I think we probably got through denial, the first stage of grief. I think we got through denial before he even announced he was, you know, transferring. I think after the, you know, after, I think, you know, the second interview with Patrick Ewing or whatever, and the clarification, we all, oh, well, you know, it didn't explicitly say he's leaving, you know, it doesn't make sense for him to leave. We were were doing the denial thing really well for a few days there. Um, Yeah, the initial... (laughs) I think the initial like few hours after he transferred uh, or announced the transfer, that was the anger portion phase two. Um, I don't know where we are in you know, you know, bargaining and acceptance and whatever the other one is. Um, it's it's sort of a time honored tradition, to be honest, with with fans and people online that when something like this happens, all of a sudden it seems like everybody had these hidden implicit feelings of you know negativity or just exhaustion with the Mac McClung thing. Right. That they all of a sudden have come out right now. You know, I've never liked that guy all along or I really grinded my gears. or I really don't like people from Gate City for some reason. Um, it's probably natural. Um, I think, I don't know, it, 
it, it felt a little over the top when I was reading through it online over the past few days, but you know, I've kind of come back around to the idea that maybe there's something to it. You know, maybe if not the fan base sort of got tired of it or exhausted of it, maybe it just, you know, this was proof that it was just never destined to be a good fit. I don't know. Yeah, I, I never really uh, dealt with denial. I think for me, it's just somewhere between anger and acceptance. Uh, part of it is that unlike most seasons, I, I'm just wasn't really that cautiously optimistic about next season to begin with. I don't think there's really anyone who would, who would think that based on next year's roster, even with Mac McClung, that we would have a really good chance to go to the tournament and, and, sneak up on some teams. And so losing Mac McClung is, isn't great. I mean, he's was clearly the best player to return on our team and we were excited to see him take the next step. At the same time, I think this just confirms what we already knew, which is we're going to struggle mightily next year. It's going to be a really difficult season to, to go through, but just a, just a couple of things that maybe not everyone experiences on having a guy like Mac McClung leave the program. I think, I think the impact on casual fans and the impact on kids, I've got two, I've got two small children. And when James Akinjo left the program, he was one of their favorites. And so it was frustrating to have to tell them that he was leaving and dealing with questions like, why, why doesn't he like Georgetown anymore? And I don't have a good answer to tell a at the time, a, like a, a, a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. And Mac McClung became their de facto favorite player because he was the leading scorer and he dunked and he was fun to watch and have to deal with a, a second set of questions relating to why another Georgetown player who was their favorite wants to leave the program. And that really, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to overstate that problem, but this is kind of the next generation of fans. They turn to their favorite players and it's tough to lose guys like this from the program and it makes them and their families kind of less interested. It's it's the same for casual observers of the program. There are a lot of people who only care about Georgetown basketball because of Mac McClung and what he's meant to the program. And with Mac's departure, it it you know makes them go away for for better or worse, and it just it loses more support that we could have otherwise have. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting to me. Um, how much he drives the casual eyeballs to the program. Um, before, earlier today, when I was doing some, some research for this, I was looking up on YouTube to, to find some of the games that we're going to talk about later. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, do yourself an experiment. Go onto YouTube and put in a search for any of the opponents, like Georgetown, and then the name of any opponent that we played this year. And look at the results that come up. Because I guarantee you, You'll see, you'll get results that are the highlight packages for the specific game. But within the first page of, 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 of results, you're going to get multiple Mac McClung themed highlight packages and not necessarily from the same game you searched for. Um, I searched for a completely unrelated game and I came up with at least two or three sets of highlights from the Oklahoma State game where he had like a whole bunch of points. He had a really good game, had a whole bunch of points in that game. And from a, from a numbers perspective, this guy does numbers on YouTube. So I went to so one of the games they had the highlights from was the Oklahoma State game. I, I clicked on one of the links so I could get like all the related links and videos. The actual like Big 12 
highlights, official highlights from that game right now, and it's been, you know, five months or so, have about 5,000 views. The highlights from Stadium, the sports network, have 8,000 views. There are multiple, I guess what you would call fan sites or like, you know, general college basketball internet kind of sites that also did specifically Mac McClung themed highlights of, these, of this game. Uh, the one from an account called Swish has 400,000 views. The one from Frankie Vision has 36,000 views. There's one from Time Out that only has about a thousand and a half views. But I found it interesting that that video is captioned, it's Max team now, which I think says a lot, doesn't it? Um, the guy does numbers. I mean, he gets eyeballs. Did it generate, you know, did it, did it translate into fans at the Capital One Arena? No. Um, but there's a fan base out there somewhere. Um, yeah, I don't know. It just, it, it, it never quite felt like, and, you know, this probably is a much broader discussion about Georgetown's history of communications out of the basketball office, but, you know, two years in, this never felt like a great fit somehow. I wish it had, it wish it had worked, but it just felt like a weird match. This, this internet superstar in Georgetown's media environment. Yeah. And this is a topic that I think I usually bring up at some point, either on Twitter um, or it's in conversations with other media members when it relates to the fact that you can't talk to freshmen until January. And when I bring it up, it's usually in the context of, look, the way that college basketball is now of the one and dones is, you know, and there's, there, there, there are people online that will disagree, but I never think they're going to get one of those guys. How are you going to get, and I'm not saying McClung's a one and done. He's like in his own little category, but the kind of guy that's coming in that's barely going to be there that wants to, you know, get his message out while he's in college. You can't do that at Georgetown and McClung, who I think is a four-year college player, but his, he's sort of bigger than everything. Um, You know, there was an article I read. It was some, uh, I think it was, it was Italian and, the, the, you know, they mentioned how he had like 800,000 Instagram followers, which is kind of a crazy thing to mention in an article. But I think the overall theme of is Georgetown a place for a one and done or some sort of, you know, McClung's almost like a mixtape type guy, right? Um, it did seem like a weird fit. And now to make it even in a bigger topic, when you're going to have the players are going to have the ability to profit off of their likeness. Is, is Georgetown a place where they're going to get those kind of guys? And I think the answer to that is no. And this isn't me trying to put a, a dark cloud over everything. And we don't know exactly why McClung left. It could be something totally different. It could be his injury. It could be style of play, whatever. But like you said, the fit, a celebrity freshman coming to Georgetown it it just doesn't it doesn't seem like a great fit and that's not a great thing going forward. Yeah, Bobby, I remember last year, it was in December, um, right around the time when the first semester at Georgetown ends. And so that's that weird dividing line where all of a sudden freshmen are available to speak to the media. But about mid-December last year, so this would be December of 2018, um, there was an article came out, I think it was in the post, about McClung. And I think they had gone down to interview some people in Gate City. And this is right around the time McClung should have been available to speak to the media. I don't, I remember tweeting about it. I don't believe McClung is quoted in the article, 
but I think the first person they quote in the article is John Thompson Jr. And I remember being like incredulous at that, that if we real, is our tradition to lock down these kids so much that you have probably the most internet famous, the socially famous player you've had in probably since Allen Iverson. And media, I guarantee you, media outlets want to tell this kid's story. And it is to your benefit as a program to get this kid's story out because his publicity is your publicity. And yet here we are a month and a half into his freshman season. He's had some good games already at that point. He had a great game against Illinois, for example. To write an article about Mac McClung, you have to go get a quote from John Thompson Jr. What the hell is that? And so I, I, I want to ask this honest question. There are, to both of you, there are perfectly legitimate basketball reasons that Mac McClung probably wants to transfer, whether it's, you know, having more of the reins and the, and, and the offense he's going to, being able to play the true point guard position that he may be better suited for, has been told he's better suited for. Do you think, though, that any of his decision is motivated by, I've got to go to a program that's going to get my name out there better and it's going to publicize me better because that's really as key to my professional aspirations as my skill set? I mean, my answer is no. I actually don't, I don't think that's a big deal at all. Um, I, 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 that's just sort of the way I feel. I, I think that Mac's name has been out there. I think Mac has been a good, you know, sort of ambassador for the program. I think Georgetown has, has done well to, you know, pump Mac up and, and, and help to further his, his career trajectory. I, I, I tend to not view um, kind of John Thompson Jr. as any sort of hindrance. And just look at Omer Yurt 7. I mean, as Omer is leaving the program, one of the first people he goes to thank is his pops. Uh, it just goes to show what an impact he continues to have for, for big men in the program. And I know that not everyone feels that way, but to me, that's still a net, a net benefit. And I'm also not ready to kind of jump to conclusions about whether Georgetown will or won't be an attractive place for, you know, people to get endorsement deals once they're allowed to to make money off their, their likeness and, and brand. I, I mean, look, Georgetown has a very good association with and longstanding association with Nike that came about as a result of the Thompson family. And I think kids are going to be looking for these sort of packages that of course can't be sold by the schools themselves, but will come um, from these different shoe companies and Georgetown is better positioned than a lot of other schools to kind of present something or that overall package that is going to be, you know, rule permitting that is going to be something they can sell to, to incoming, incoming students. Yeah. yeah um, to, to, to be actually, I, I, to be clear, I don't want to make this about, this isn't about John Thompson Jr. Specifically. I was just using that to illustrate that, you know, you've got a player who is a terrific subject for an article or a feature story. And if you're a reporter at that point, you have to nibble around the edges to get at it rather than just go talk to Mac McClung, make Mac McClung available or make Patrick Ewing available to talk about him. That's, that's sort of the thing, right? I think that some, sometimes we're self-defeating and that we shield the players too much and that there are good stories who just don't let get out. Um, that said, I, I do tend to agree with Howie. I don't think that the publicity thing is really the driving reason. It may not even be a subsidiary reason why he's transferring, but um, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Bob. No, it's just, um, you're right. Thinking back to that Illinois game, you know, Illinois, it was, you know, a win on the road in the Big Ten. Uh, 
it was a pretty exciting game at the end. I know McClung had a pretty big dunk. I think it might have been like a reverse. And I believe the player they brought out, it was either Trey Morning or Greg Malinowski, because neither Akinjo or McClung could speak at that point. Um, you know, if I'm just trying to find reasons to support why I think freshmen should be able to talk, maybe that's what I'm doing. But I have always felt that in a day and age like this, all things being equal, if you're an Instagram star like McClung, and, you know, I don't know how many more guys there are like that where you come into college with, you know, half a million Instagram followers or Twitter followers or whatever. Um, but I do think for the one and dones, you know, I I just don't know how how viable it is to have that. And it's not that hard to fix. This isn't this isn't building an on-campus arena, right? It's it's a really simple thing to do to get into 2020. Um, I just, because McClung's media following gets brought up by everybody, I think it's worth talking about. Um, there's a couple other different, different angles to this. Howie, I know when you yeah. look back at it, oh no, I, I was, I, I was just going to, going to switch to an, another point. Just when you look back to what happened mid season and who knows if we'll ever know what really happened, particularly with Akinjo, it was sort of seen like, well, you have Akinjo or McClung. Clearly, they can't both play together. And so Georgetown loses Akinjo. You know, obviously a great player, great great college player. But if everyone stays healthy, I think this team might have had enough to get over the finish line. But to come away from what seemed like a conflict between Akinjo and McClung and to go into next season with neither of them is amazing. Amazingly bad. Yeah, this is the the sort of great and and tragic irony of the the legacy of of Mackinjo. Yeah, you know, Akinjo comes in as a as a true point guard, arguably the 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 only real true point guard we've 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 had at that level who could play at a high level since Martel Starks, who averaged what he averaged seven assists a game was the Big East Rookie of the Year. He was a guy who was clearly a point guard, but who wanted to be more of a more of a scorer, and he wanted the ball in his hands at the end of the game. Just he wasn't he wasn't the best shooter, but you know he 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 was he was a playmaker. And then you have Mac McClung, who is a volume scorer, who we found out recently wanted to play more of a role at the point, and who sees himself as sharing the ball more. We didn't, we didn't see a lot of that during the season, but we did see some of it. And what's so ironic and unfortunate is these two guys actually could have played along uh, with each other. Uh, they do complement each other. If, if, we, if we had a little bit more time to see how this project would work out, you could envision, envision a situation where they share ball handling duties at the top of the key you know, Akinjo turns into a little bit more of a scorer, or Akinjo turns, um, Mac turns into a little bit more of a passer, and and they turn into you know one of these dynamic backcourts that resemble some of what we've seen at Villanova. We we could have made it work, and I don't know if it was a problem of communication. Who knows? But it's it's sad to see because these these guys you would think are four year players who are. Who were who were skilled at their respective positions? Who had we known their their sort of true intentions at the outset? Maybe we did, maybe we didn't. You really they could have actually made this work. 
Right. But yeah, I mean, you know, and Ewing obviously from day one, right? Like he puts both of the men again, you know, over Jagan, right? Over Blair, who was a uh, Big East All freshman guy. So he obviously saw these guys, and he, he, you know, Ewing knows talent. He's been in the NBA forever, and he's like, this is this is a backcourt that can work. And I just think, I think, obviously, you want two, but to end up with none going into what would be their junior season. That's that's just that's just really it's really hard. Just it's just it's just really hard for the program to remember from that, which gets back to your point of going into this next season. You know, I think I think you you said you've always been optimistic and, you know, this is like the first time you can think of um, since JT3's first year where you kind of go into the season thinking probably nothing. No, even even JT3's first year, there was a sense of excitement because. Okay. You know, it was it was a new system. We had all of these new exciting freshmen coming in: Jeff Green, Roy Hibbert, Jonathan Wallace. So I there was there was uncertainty, but I don't know if if we didn't really have really high or low expectations. The only season where I felt like we didn't have much of a chance to go to the tournament was Ewing's first year, and I think Ewing okay. himself has kind of admitted that that first year was going to be a struggle because the cupboard was a little bare. But but you're right. I mean, this is we're facing a similar, if not worse situation heading into next season where we, we need talent and it's going to be, it's going to be a long season. Yeah. Um, I do wonder, you know, on the, on the subject of, of James and Mac, I do wonder, you know, there's been, it's one of these things where I think somebody makes a comment on a message board, maybe, and it gets spun up into a theory, which gets spun up into fact. There's this notion that. At some point this year, the, the coaching staff may have overhauled the way that they approach recruiting, the way they approach scouting players, what, what needs to happen before a player is given an offer. And I have no idea if that's actually the case. But if you're an optimist or if you're of a certain frame of mind about where you think the program is going, what you might say is, yeah, a lot of these recruitments we've had recently weren't exactly incredibly visible above the radar things, but they seem to have tried to develop some kind of relationship with the players that they're bringing in. Now, some of these are stealth recruitments maybe, but one thing that James and Mac have in common is that they're both picked up off of decommitments. Um, and James's recruitment in particular went very fast. I think Ewing was on a plane out to the West Coast like the, the night of or the night after he decommitted from UConn. And I wonder in retrospect if it seems pretty obvious, actually, maybe there wasn't quite as much due diligence or quite as much relationship building done with these two players where you might have been able to foresee some of the tension or that maybe, you know, Matt McClung came first as a recruit, maybe, you know, James Akinjo, ooh, you know, the role he plays, the personality he has, that might not quite fit well with Matt McClung. Doesn't mean you don't take him, but you have to realize, okay, there's going to need to be some work done here. Um, and maybe that's something that they're more cognizant of. Now, that said, they're certainly bringing in a lot of guard, point guard types next year. Um, but maybe that's an area of growth the staff is seeing as a result of this. Maybe that's something good that can come out of it that you don't make the same mistake again, getting guys who you know, are maybe not quite compatible on the court. One thing I and, want and to add, too, actually. Go ahead. Actually, go ahead, Alex. I, was just gonna, I mean, this, this comes back to the, something that's been discussed a number of times, which is 
Jay Wright's come to Jesus moment where he realized I'm not just going to recruit. I'm just, I'm not just going to go after the best of the best in each recruiting class. I'm going to find yeah. a, a max of eight players that are complementary, and everyone else is, you know, going to recognize that they're not going to be part of that core eight. You know, in our case though, it's uh, Jay Wright came to that lesson after going to the final four in in our yeah. case, it's, it's just coming a different part of this arc. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, we, we can hope for the growth, right? Um, one thing, one thing I want to add on this topic is um, I, I did not get to, I guess, um, Trey Dickerson uh, spoke with Gene Smith um, on, I think it was Instagram live yesterday. I did a little, I don't know, interview or what the format was. Um, Somebody on Hoya Talk posted a little bit. I wish I had the person's name in front of me. I'm not in front of my computer. Um, posted a little summary of the general topics that they discussed. And one of the things Trey brought up was he indicated, he suggested that um, some of the social media kind of, you know, pro Mac McClung, pro James Akinjo kind of factions on social media actually did have something of an impact on the team internally which I found interesting because that's always been a question, right? Do the, do the players notice this? Did it actually, is it just noise or does it actually make a difference? And, it, and at least according to what trades intimating, it might have. Yeah, but I think you're going to have that everywhere. I think good teams with good players, there's always going to be that. And I imagine, you know, with at schools with bigger fan bases, I can't even imagine what that's like, right? Like, sure, you know, what, it's, what's interesting though is that the interesting factor though is I bet you such that there are pro Mac and pro James Akinjo factions on social media. I bet you they're not even really that much a Georgetown fan. Uh, certainly yeah. Georgetown fans probably do fall in one of the camps. But I really doubt it's Georgetown fans driving that discussion. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah. That's the question. Yeah. And and I, I know this I, I know this this has been discussed before and it's sure all over the boards but uh, in the, the the universe of possible reasons why Mac decided to leave or felt he had no choice but to leave you know there's 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 one reason that jumps out where people would say okay that makes sense and that's I think if he was somehow uh, misdiagnosed with his foot injury or felt like he was rushed back and uh, you know, not getting proper guidance on that, or uh, he he decided that at some point he wanted to be a point guard, and he approached the staff about making the transition to point guard and wanted support there, and and the response was we don't think that's that's good for the team, and 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 then we brought in two freshmen and a and a grad transfer to to play the point, and that kind of pushed him in the other direction. Just just to address that that latter part. You know, it's it. Everyone just sort of assumes that Mac hasn't demonstrated enough to to kind of be put in the point guard role, but we have seen flashes of it, and I I do think it's kind of it, it's too soon to make a determination as to whether he can play the point or not. I keep coming back to my my favorite game in the Ewing era so far is is when we destroyed SMU from start to finish. And one of the best parts about that game was Mac was a phenomenal distributor. Uh, he had 19 points, seven assists, four rebounds, two steals, seven assists in that game. Now Terrell Allen had 10 assists in that game. He was the premier facilitator on the team, 
But Mac had seven assists in only 28 minutes and and hit five threes. It was just sort of the perfect balance. And remember, this was only a couple days after we had won at Oklahoma State, and we won that game. I think Mac had 33. We won that game because Mac was all over the place. He was our volume scorer. He was hitting shots left and right. And you're like, okay, in the post, you know, sort of defection uh, weeks, we can survive if Mac goes off like that. And that wasn't the case in the SMU game at all because Mac didn't need to go off and we still thoroughly dominated the team because as teams collapsed on him, he he passed the ball around and, and got good shots for the guys. And that's another thing I think that's unfortunate is if he really did want to play the point and the staff said no, and we have no reason to believe that that's true, who, who, it's all speculation, but if that is the case and Mac felt like he wasn't getting enough of an opportunity or couldn't, you know, it, it's it's unfortunate because this this year's team, I think, might have given him a lot of opportunities. We've got Javon Blair, who uh, can be a good shooter, but struggles to put the ball on the floor. So he's a catch-and-shoot sort of guy who's waiting to have the ball thrown at his feet. We have Jamarco Pickett, who's also a really good set shooter, who's waiting to catch the ball on the perimeter and take jump shots. Jump shots. And then we have guys like Wahab who aren't great shooters, but who are looking for those lobs under the basket. We just have a lot of guys like that. And now TJ Berger is another one too, who, you know, good shooters who are just looking to get the ball in good positions. It, it's, it's too bad because I would have liked to have seen Mac try to make a, the jump to more of a facilitator if that's, if that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. 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 You know, it's not, it's not guaranteed that just because you bring in, say, a grad transfer who plays point guard or plays in the backcourt, that that guy is automatically going to start over you or take a lot of the point guard duties from you. I mean, we've just, you know, gone through a season where we brought in Terrell Allen, who started at guard for a team that very nearly made the Sweet 16, and he did not start to begin the year. You never know what your role is going to be on a team. Um, it, it actually brings me to, so what do we think of the quotes that Mac McClung gave um, when he announced he was transferring? I think the first article was on ESPN. What do we think of the, the two quotes? The one about, you know, it was a number of different events that made me feel I had no choice but to transfer, wanted to stay, but things throughout my career made me realize I couldn't. That was one of them. The other one was saying, you know, looking for a place I can call home, a place I can be part of a family and help them succeed. Is there anything to those or any deeper meaning? Um, yeah, we t- touched about we touched on this last week. Um, McClellan doesn't usually give quotes like that. He's usually a yes sir, no sir. Uh, my teammates did everything to make it easy for me. Like you know, you never get anything of any sort of substance or color out of him. So it'll be. It'll be interesting to see where those came. Were they his quotes? Were they quotes from his agent? Um, You know, just really unusual quotes from Mac McClung. Um, Some of the quotes kind of lead you to believe maybe there's a problem with the injury, you know, Um, or you could, you could also read into them that, you know, he just realized I wasn't, you know, playing the point guard enough and I wanted to stay, but I just think it's better that I go and showcase my talents elsewhere. I feel like it's got to be one of those two, but I do think you rarely see stuff like this coming from someone leaving Georgetown. Cause if anything, we talked about earlier about, you know, the way they protect you, the way they shelter you. And, um, 
you know, the idea that you want to find a better family than than those guys is that's usually at least what Georgia kind of hangs their hat on, right? Yeah. It's a very tight knit circle. So yeah, the, people to me, to, the quotes are seem, really surprising. Yeah, people seem to at least initially really glom on to the one about family because I think that that hits a nerve for for Georgetown yeah. fans because that's sort of that's our thing. Yeah, um, that's we are we are a dynastic basketball program, um, and we try to promote a, a family atmosphere, you know, broadly defined. Um, to me, though, actually, that quote to me—if you took that exact quote and you told me that it came from any prospect that was cutting their list down to six and talking to like Rivals.com—it sounds kind of boilerplate to me. I also don't make too much of it. Um, of course, he's looking for a place where he can be part of a family. Like, isn't any recruit? Isn't any transfer? Um, the one about a number of different reasons. I mean, I, I might, you know, put a little more stock in that. Um, I have no particular insight into what specific things he could be referring to, but my, is, my goodness. Is that, maybe, is, is, is that maybe where if we're listing out a lot of things, that's where Ewing's blunder about saying he's coming back could be included? It could be a lot of things, right? If, if there's that specific blunder, which is, which is directly impacting Mac McClung and probably impacted his, you know, later NBA interviews during his process. Right. Think about everything that's gone on with the program from like the very start of the year. This program could not pull off a midnight madness, right? They had four players leave almost at the same time. That became a massive communications crisis and how they handled information about it. The way two of the players left was under very unusual circumstances. There were, you know, both McClung and Yurt Seven were injured and then tried to come back seemingly too early and kind of re-injured themselves. I mean, just on a basic level, the program was a lot this year for somebody to, yeah. to be with. Like if you were working at Chili's and there were like three armed robberies and the boss forgot to make payroll one week and two employees got into a fight and there was a food poisoning incident, you might consider going to work at Pizza Hut. You know, nobody would blame you. Right? It, it's a little bit, we're a little bit extra right now. I, I don't. I agree with you. I don't think the second quote means anything. I wouldn't read into family or anything like that. He's looking for another school, and he's talking about what's important to him. He may have used similar language when he was looking for a school initially when he was still in high school. So I, that that doesn't rub me the wrong way. It's that first quote where he indicates that he kind of had no choice but to leave based on a few different things that have happened. I I don't think the Ewing uh, you know, sort of faux pas when he when he initially said that McClung was coming back is a, is a big deal. Could it have been the straw that broke the camel's back and that there were a number of things and this just sort of made him upset? It's, I guess it's possible, but I, I don't, I don't know why that of all possible things is, is the thing that, that makes you leave. Keep in mind also that players haven't formally been allowed to talk to agents until very, very recently. And this may be the new normal where you have an agent, in his ear telling him the steps he needs to take and, you know, providing a candid self-interested assessment of where he needs to be and how the agent can therefore get paid. That's, that's not out of the realm of possibility too. And that may also be informing some of the quotes that, that we're seeing. And the unfortunate reality here also, you know, he's getting feedback from NBA scouts where they're telling him he needs to be more of a facilitator. He needs to work on his shot. The, the, the one thing we know, you know, in the last few years is that Georgetown has a reputation as, you know, 
still has a reputation as being a big man school and Patrick Ewing is a big man coach and we don't have much of a track record of developing guards. And that's, some of that is untrue. I mean, you know, guys like Jake and Mosley have, have developed. Um, we've had some success stories, but for these, for the, for the top ranked guys in the backcourt, Georgetown is still viewed as not, you know, the, the top destination. And Mac may have felt that he could have gotten better guidance as he tries to get to the next level from, from somewhere else. It, and that's where McClung aside, obviously they lose an internet sensation. Kids liked him. He's a good college player. He could have been Georgetown's maybe Marcus Howard or Miles Powell for a year or two, which I know would be great for Georgetown fans after watching those two guys light Georgetown up. And just to have a dynamic score like that as a junior and a senior, I think everybody was looking forward to that. I don't think lose, you know, Matt McClung, if next season happens, like you guys have said, he's not going to, losing him is not going to be the reason you don't get to the Sweet 16 or you don't make the tournament. It's probably a rebuilding year based on all the guys that left. Um, I think the real issue that could come out of this is if players start to feel like Georgetown's not a place that can get them to the NBA. Um, you know, the school hasn't really had an NBA player since 2013 um, when Otto Porter was drafted. Marcus Derrickson, you know, played 10 to 15 games on a on a two-way contract. I think that could be the real issue out of this. Like once, you know, guys transfer all the time. This happens everywhere all the time. You know, you can you can survive it. But to have an NBA, former NBA assistant coach, a former NBA icon and to have a feeling that that guy can't help you get to the league. That, that to me is the most, that that could potentially be the most damning part of this. But like you just said, Howie, Georgetown's known for big men. And this is just one person saying this, this is just one departure because of this reason. Georgetown on their roster this past season, literally just had a player who sat for an entire season after being third team, all ACC because he wanted to come to Georgetown to give himself the best chance to go to the NBA in Omiri at seven. So this is obviously not, this is not a huge, um, it's just one data point of one guy thinking this. Um, So I'm not trying to say that that is what's going on, but if you asked me what could be the biggest problem from McClung leaving, if this were to become a thought going forward, this is my, this is what I would think would be a bigger issue than just losing one guy. Yeah. No argument there. <laughs> okay, so we lost one and we picked up another. Good. <laughs> now, do we think that this that this um, commitment came once the staff knew McClung was gone? Yes. Yeah, of course. So, um, one of the things that. As, as with a new head coach, Patrick Ewing still new, even though his staff is established in college basketball. He's still figuring out, you know, what pieces work together and all that stuff. And obviously it hasn't worked out that great so far. But guys like Dante Harris, TJ Berger, while they're not high on, on all fans' wish list, even though fans don't really know what they're talking about as far they just know that guy's ranked 10th or that guy's ranked 30th, blah, blah, blah. If these are the guys, after watching him, hey, you know, this guy can fit in my system, that he's a good shooter, he's a good defender – you know, 
these under the radar recruits could be a big deal as we saw immediately with the last coach that was here bringing in Jonathan Wallace who I'm sure if you go back and have the time and look at what everybody said oh my god this guy was only going to Princeton you know blah 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 you know when guys recruit to the way they want to play those can be some of the best recruits right but you have to figure that JT3 probably had a pre-existing relationship with Jonathan Wallace before he was hired from Princeton right yeah yeah the question I have he did the question I have and I, yeah, the question I have, I, I'm curious. Dante Harris's commitment came pretty quickly after, was it, was it RJ, I can't remember, RJ Davis, is that the name of the recruit that committed to North Carolina that we've yeah. been on for a long time? Yeah. Came really quickly after that. TJ Burgers came very quickly after Mac McClung. I swear, I in just reading about TJ, I swear that they had had a little bit of a pre-existing relationship with him, but at the same time, I feel like once we were seriously involved, the commitment happened quickly. I guess that gets back to my question. Are we building a roster by developing over the long term relationships with recruits and prospects, even if they're under the radar? Or are we just sort of not panicking exactly, but like trying to course correct very quickly after we lose out on somebody we were more interested in or we have an unexpected transfer? You know, that's the question. How are you building your roster, right? We have built our roster in the early years of viewing a lot by grad transfers, decommitments, and guys we seemingly recruited quickly. Is that the way to do this? Completely unrelated to how you know, T.J. Berger's skill set. Um, it's just it's interesting, right? It's just a pattern. Anyway, he seems like a nice kid. Well, I think I know for Harris for a fact. I talked to some some coaches, some some assistant coaches, and. The idea was that he was Harris was a player that a lot of major schools were monitoring. And there's been a thought recently that, and this is not to disrespect his game, I literally have never seen him play basketball live, but sometimes you need to fill out your roster with guys that you think are going to be role player, role player, role player, yep. and then maybe Absolutely. start by senior year or junior year. And if what he does, or in, and you know, same with Berger and whoever else, if if what if what those guys do well fits to the way that you know the staff wants to play, those are the guys that you want to get. Now, yeah, it is a little curious when you lose out on a guy and then you immediately go to him, but um, you know, I think that the under the radar guys can be good if they fit what you do, and that's a positive. Yeah. And TJ, I mean, it appears to have one, he appears to be a great shooter. That's one particular skill set. Um, does, I don't know, maybe he profiles as somebody who, like you said, probably will, I don't know if he's a redshirt candidate or somebody who will be a role player for a couple of years. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and certainly he gave a couple of great interviews where he talks about his interactions with the staff, the role he, you know, perceives himself playing. I think he did a lot to endear himself with the fan base coming on the heels of Mac McClung's announcement by saying in an interview, I'll play whatever position they want me to play. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> I'm being facetious there, but yeah, I think that, that helped a lot with the fan base at that moment. And, you know, we have a, we now have an, an, a like second degree of separation relationship with and one. I didn't know that that was a thing. So my high school team, we wore and one. <laughs> I, will, I will say um, there was this, so like probably this is when I was about in grad school, so we're talking like 04, 05-ish or 06. There was no better way 
to on like a lazy Sunday afternoon when I didn't have a lot of work or I didn't have a paper due to like like waste away like two or three hours than when ESPN2 would run like the streetball marathons, like the N1 mixtape tour stuff. I'd, I'd probably watch that stuff like half a dozen times each uh, when I was in grad school, just wasting time. So brings back some memories, man. It's been a while, but yeah, yeah. It's kind of an odd connection. And I guess the, you know, the high school where his dad is now coaching too, they've had a number of very prominent prospects too. So it's not the worst thing in the world to have a relationship there. Um, some of the things that folks talk about on, on message boards about why you recruit certain players, it may not be about that player specifically, it may be about building a relationship or it may have a secondary benefit. So I hope though he surprises me and surprises everybody and grows into a really dynamic, you know, member of the roster. Howie, man. Howie. Did we lose Howie? And they have lost Howie. Um, so, so, um, so speaking, speaking of Howie, and hopefully the bear didn't get him. Man. <laughs> um, after talking about McClung for longer than I thought we would, which obviously isn't the most cheery subject, even if it's, you know, not doom and gloom, it's just the idea of losing a player and how did it happen. Um, Part of me doesn't know if we should do one of the sadness games that we have here. But part of part of me, though, because some people are just, and I have to assume it's younger people, um, are just really, really want to put a lot of blame on a fan base that would do a sadness bracket, which every week we go over how it's it's really, you know, you have to have the lows to have the highs. You, that's that's it's almost required. Okay, every program is not Duke, you know. So, do we want to go with this and wait for Howie to get back from the Bear and he'll join us when he joins us? Or, yeah, what do you think? No, I think we should. Um, so, we have, so I guess for folks who don't know, so Howie is the one who, um, Howie seeded all Howie these bad boys. Howie, yeah, he, he was one who, one of the designers of the madness and the sadness brackets. So, the narrative that you see on, on Cash Ahoy, that's Howie writing those narratives. And so he usually does the, the like summaries of each of the games. So fortunately I've got some kind of how he's stuff here. So I can, I can take over for him here. Um, so we got one game from the sadness bracket or one matchup from the sadness bracket that we'll do first. And then we have one from the madness bracket. That's actually a preview. Um, I think the, the casual account decided to take a break from the bracket with the Mac McClung news, eating up most of the oxygen last week, probably a good idea. You probably had your fill of sadness. Um, but hey, I mean, look, it still ate up most of our oxygen this week. <laughs> it did, yeah. Um, but anyway, the um, the matchup that we have for the sadness bracket this week, um, the 4-5 matchup, this one was from uh, originally posted online last week. So actually, I think we've already voted on it. It was a very close vote. Um, one of the games is the 2005 Big East Tournament quarterfinal. This is Thursday night at the Garden, Bobby. Don't get too excited. Yeah. Um, this is UConn 66, Georgetown 62. Um, fans of a certain age, my age, that was in grad school at the time, um, watching this on TV, uh, will remember that this was the game where Georgetown had the ball down two in the final seconds of the game, and Ashanti Cook um, had the ball in his hand, um, drove the lane, pulled up for about, I'd say, a 16, 17-footer, um, back-rimmed it, 
Jeff Green was, and this is, some games that we have narratives over, like, you know, I, I, we said last week, I'm not a big fan of the Chris Wright broke his hand and that cost us the season thing. In this case, the narrative of Jeff Green was, <laughs> okay. In this case, I just watched the, the last 12 minutes of the game on YouTube earlier today. The narrative is actually true. Jeff Green is standing wide open at the top of the key for a three-pointer. Um, Ashanti had collapsed the defense. Uh, but he put up a contested shot, didn't get it. UConn ends up winning by four. We, we bomb out of the Big East tournament in the quarterfinal. Um, it was, you know, for me, thinking back to that time, this was a really tough one um, to get. I, I don't think this one cost Georgetown a tournament bid. Um, I don't think we were just that one game away, even though UConn would have been a good quality win. But we were certainly, you know, if you get past UConn, uh, what's waiting for you in the semifinals is a game against Syracuse, um, who you, you know, speaking of games with narratives, the Brandon Bowman toe game was that year. We lost to Syracuse in overtime. It's a winnable game at a neutral site. So maybe they get on a run and maybe just that one extra win maybe gets them in for the tournament. Um, the other game in the brackets, or the other game in this matchup is February 4th, 2010. Um, I don't even need to tell you the teams. I just tell you, this is the Dom, this is the y'all came to see Dominique Jones play game. Uh, Georgetown loses to USF, uh, shoved there in between the win over Duke and the win over Villanova in the snow games. You have this thing. Um, Georgetown blew something like a 14 point or 13 point lead. I think um, Dominique Jones scored 29, uh, really had his way. I actually remember him scoring more, from the field than he did. He actually turned out to get like most of these points at the line. Um, but, you know, it's, it, anytime you lose to USF, you're making it on the bracket. I mean, let's just be, let's be real. So, so you said that this game's already been decided. Don't tell me who wins. Okay. Um, I think, I think South Florida is the five seed gets this W just because that was a Georgetown team where after what they had just done, you're thinking, wow, you know, can they be top five next week? Right. You know, can, is is this the type of team that is going to push for a one seed? Right. I mean, there's, you know, it's, you know, it sounds crazy to say that right now, but that's what it was like a decade ago. (laughs) Those, those are the feelings. (laughs) And the Connecticut game, even though that 2005 season started really well, at least in conference play, and it ended poorly, and like you said, they probably had to make a run to the Big East final, I think, to get into the tournament. That team was so likable, and the fact that they played Connecticut so tough after, I think, a week or two earlier, they had gotten blown out on the road. Yeah, they got bombed pretty bad. Yeah, which is what we had been used to at that point. I think they had lost, they, they I think they had maybe had lost ten straight to Connecticut, and you know Connecticut was a buzzsaw, and yep. the Eschrick years, you know, while I've been romanticizing about them recently, weren't that great when going up against <laughs> Connecticut. Okay, no. and this is in the middle of our ten-year losing streak to UConn. Right, and not that I look. I love those two that the 2010 Hoyas. You know, people talk about, you know, all day on Twitter, well, now that the last dance is over, what what would you like to see a documentary on? And I know that Georgetown's fan base isn't huge, so I'm not going to go out there and say this, but 
if it's me, I want to know what happened to the 2010 Hoyas, right? I mean, the up and down. in 2012 for my favorite team. Yeah, so I know that the footage doesn't exist, but I would sit <laughs> down and watch a huge documentary on the 2010 Georgetown Hoyas. Like, no question. No question. Um, and and I, I know I'm jumping back and forth between both these games. Isn't it crazy? And I know that um, that's JT3's first year and the third year they made the Final Four, and there were a lot of non-Eshrick players on the Final Four team. Wallace, Sapp, Summers, um, you know, Macklin Rivers, Ewing. So most of the team. But when you look at what happened those first two years, it is kind of crazy how well, like, for instance, Brandon Bowman and Ashante Cook and Daryl Owens, who were not recruited to play that style, just fit in so well yeah. from day one. I would take right? Daryl Owens on my team right now. I know. But, you know, it, I mean, you could have had guys where it didn't really work, and a lot of the um, a lot of the Eshrick uh, fans at the time, you know, would constantly comment about how JT3 was set up nicely by his recruiting, and it it did just it it did happen that the guy the the main guys coming back, and obviously the guys he had recruited that showed up for the first year as, as freshmen, those guys just fit that system so well, almost to the point where there's guys you know for years he had recruited that didn't fit as well as some of these other guys. Now maybe it's the fact that they were juniors. Um, I think Daryl Owens I think ended up being a fifth year senior, right? Mm-hmm. So. Obviously, they're more mature, all that stuff. But, but yeah, watching Georgetown take that Connecticut team to the wire and have the season end, and you know, you know, it's, it's the NIT. But at that point, the NIT is a great thing. Um, yeah. But that's what, like, when I when I see the name Brandon Bowman and Ashante Cook, and just remember how they got this two parts of their career, and the second part, you know, ends in the Sweet Sixteen, taking the best team in the country to the wire. Um, it's just crazy how well those guys fit immediately. Yeah. It's, you know, there was a moment, I think it's, when I look back, it, one of the things I remember about that 05 season was there was so much optimism about the team. It really felt like you had gotten through the trauma of the end of the Eshrick year, and there really was a lot of optimism. And there was a point I remember riding home on the Metro after the Notre Dame game the one that we won on the, the Hibbert dunk at the buzzer. And I think that game, I was looking at the schedule today. I think that game put us at like 15 and six, and I think we won the next game. And that was about late January, I think. And at that point, you know, when you haven't been to the tournament for like four or five years, the next time we get close, this is going to happen again. You, you want it to happen so bad. I remember having a conversation. You remember Kurt used to, you know, the guy from the We Are Georgetown shirts and everything. I was talking yeah. to him on the Metro and we were back from the Notre Dame game. And we're talking about like, holy crap, are they actually going to do this? Are they actually going to make the tournament? And, you know, by the time this UConn game comes around, like they had lost five in a row down the regular season. They really were not, like I said, not exactly in a position. But, you know, they maybe were only, you know, I looked at who made the tournament that year. You know, we finished the, we finished the, uh, the Big East tournament 17 and 12. Right. The last team in that year as an at-large was UCLA, and they were 18 and 11. So it's not that far-fetched. I mean, if you look, the NIT wasn't seeded back then, but based on, like, home games and kind of who was in the bracket, 
we were probably a two or three seed in today's heated NIT world. So we may not have been that far off. Um, well, so it hurt. And I actually, it was you know, a I killer actually, losing the last home game to Providence. That wasn't even a good Providence. Yeah. It's a Tim Welsh, bad Providence team. Um, you know, you get that, you get to 17 and 10. Uh, yeah. Nine and, and seven in the league. Close, you know, what, that was the last was, game. I didn't know this was going to turn into a 2005 rewind. Was this the you're you're pretty good at remembering this kind of stuff? Was this the year that the Georgetown Seton Hall game was on ESPN Classic? It is. I have the poster. Do you do you remember what I'm talking about? And I think Lou, I think Orr is the coach, right? You would have been at the time, yeah. I just remember that being one of the weirdest promotions. <laughs> it was. I still have up in my upstairs closet. I still have like a full size poster from that game. I think so. The other thing, I, I again, UConn. If you look up, I think it's like UConn Husky games or something on 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 Google. There's yeah. actually a good like full archive of UConn games. I actually watched the last few minutes of this game earlier. I had forgotten. I knew about the last possession where we had a chance to tie or win it. I did not know that we kind of bumbled the end of this game. Like we really should have had even a better chance at this game. So we were we were down by five with two nineteen to go and Daryl Owens missed the front end of a one and one. That we could have gotten there as close as three. Yeah. We got a stop on the next possession and then Ashanti Cook was dribbling up the court and nobody was around him. He just straight up lost the ball out of bounds. So it blew that chance of the possession and UConn bumped it up to a seven point lead with like a minute 15 left and we actually this is the thing that always frustrated people about jt3 we're down seven with just over a minute to go we bring the ball across court and we're just running the normal offense with like no sense of urgency until brandon bowman finds oh crap and like does something and but we actually you know we got two two free throws there we forced a turnover like an unforced yukon turnover we got a three so it was actually we really kind of bumbled almost bumbled our way out of the game with a chance to win it. And then we got a chance to win it back. So it was sort of doubly frustrating in retrospect. I remember like, Oh yeah, we probably so, even could have had a better shot than we did. So did you um, end up going, did you go UConn or did you go South, South Florida here? I, you can probably tell from the way I'm talking about these games that I went UConn. Um, the fan voting went USF, which <laughs> I got, so I have two questions for you on that. Um, again, it's a fan vote, right. But, um, which which of the three do you think it's like a more like devastating thing to lose to? Is it USF, Rutgers, or DePaul? Like which one automatically gets you in the sadness bracket? Well, I guess depending on how old you are. Like I remember when Georgetown DePaul was a marquee game when I was a kid. <laughs> and I feel like I still take that with me a little bit. Like I see them as, you know, a sleeping giant, right? If they could keep some of the Chicago kids there. Um even when they were Conference USA, they weren't like when they got to the Big East, they just became this immediate doormat. And they it's not like they got to the Big East last year. It's been 2005, the 2005 six mm-hmm. season. Um and then like I said, it's all about your, your your perspective. I remember Georgetown playing South Florida in the big in the NCAA tournament. But basically, my entire life, Rutgers has been nothing. Now I know this year they were good and they would have made what's that? Until now, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Until now, ironically enough, may, maybe maybe McClung will go back to where he was supposed to go, um, which would be really interesting. 
but uh yeah so for me for me it's rutgers but i think you know a case could be made for any of those programs i think i think this game i think this game gets a little bit of a a bump because it's usf like if this if we had lost this game to like providence it may not even be on here the other thing i think gives it a bump is it's, it's dominique jones there's nothing that fans hate worse than when another team has fun in your building uh, it gets people so butthurt. And Dominique Jones really did spend most of the second half like openly taunting the student section. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples. Help me out here, Bobby. Examples of like players that have become hated among our fan base really for just one game. Like you can't say Jerry McNamara because that spans a career, but like just one isolated game. Like there's Dominique Jones for me. There's Levance Field for the chest bumping thing in that one pit game. Um, who else? We have Jared Dudley probably for that one Boston college game. Um, I, think, I think on Syracuse, I probably. Go ahead. Uh, what's, what's the kid's name? Uh, I'm going to say it wrong. Maybe uh, Argonaut. Oh yeah. Chris Orangenaut or however you say his name from Syracuse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who was it on the West Virginia bench that pushed Patrick Ewing? Was that was that was that the coach? Who, what was that situation? We got into it. With, we got into it with John Bayline. Right. Uh, I don't know if there was another person on the bench that we got into it with, but Bayline would qualify probably. Yeah. Um. You know, do you do you remember the name Jim Hayford? No. Eastern Washington's coach. Oh, yeah. There, there was a hot minute where Georgetown fans hated that guy because he said something vaguely indicating he might be confident his team could do well. Well, you know, it was a... But still, yeah, there's, there's a weird phenomenon, like Quincy McKnight I was mentioning. Like, by the way, I just saw on Twitter he graduated today, so congrats to Quincy. Um, I'm sure but, he listens. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, Quincy McKnight just for the act of slapping the floor. Right. We always remember Quincy McKnight. I think that's that's one of those dynamics there. Like people, the combination of USF and there was a guy in the game and it's relatively recent. Like kind of put this over the top. You know what, though? Well, for the and the fact, you know, the fact that Georgetown gets their revenge on them later in the year. Right. So they do. Yeah, that's right. You forget. We forget, I guess, that uh, their run to the Big East tournament starts with USF. Yeah. I forgot about that. Um, fun fact. Fun, depressing fact. Um, USF has won multiple games in the NCAA tournament more recently than Georgetown. That's a true fact. <laughs> it's one of the yeah, that was like, the, they, they won, that was 2012, right, where they, they won yeah. the first four? Yep. Yeah, it's one of the strangest second-round games I can ever remember. USF against Ohio. And Ohio has been to the Sweet 16 more recently than Georgetown. All right. So, we got some good news. Yes. We, promise yes we do so we have a we have a thing about howie did he defeat the bear howie is um he's dealing with something i don't i don't think it's bear related but i don't think it's not not bear related yeah (laughs) so we've got we've got a three six matchup we have georgetown beating ohio state i can't believe um john wasn't at the game this is in 2006 this is in dayton this is the this is the Ohio State's a two seed, and Georgetown just had their way with them, basically in a road game, seventy to fifty-two. Uh, one of the weirder box scores in that only four Georgetown mm-hmm. players scored, and they scored seventy. Okay, um, and then the sixth seed is the 
this is the, I believe Gus Johnson says, Hey, do you know what day it is? It's March. That's right. So this is, this is 2008. This is in a string of just crazy wins for that Georgetown team. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Wallace is fouled at the end of the game, shooting a three. He makes all three Georgetown wins in overtime. Um, yep. You know, when I think of Marquette, this is kind of the guys I think of. I think of Matthews, McNeil, mm-hmm. and Dominic James. I don't know why. It's obviously, it's that's 12 years ago, okay? Yeah. But if you told me to close my eyes and picture Marquette, that's who I'm picturing. Do you, do you picture Lazar Hayward? Yeah. That, that's a great, like, if it's, this, 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 this bracket, if nothing else, is also about remembering some guys, and that's my remembering some guys from this game is Lazar Hayward. Maybe Maurice Acker, too, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're right. No, I agree. Dominic James is, like, even more so than Marcus Howard, to be honest. It's the guy I remember. Yeah, and again, I don't know. Is that just, you know, are we sounding old? If you're if you're a recent graduated Hoya, um, are you thinking, look, jerks, I don't care about some game that happened 12 <laughs> years ago. Now, for me, for me, this seems like this game happened like four months ago, right? Or, you know, at least four years ago, okay? Like, it yeah. doesn't seem like it was 12 years ago. It's memorable. It, this game really does have everything. First of all, I, I will give a lot of credit to... Marquette fans. They are really good and they're really boisterous. And the you know Bradley Center and now whatever they're the Pfizer Forum or the Mixing Up Arenas, whatever the new arena is called, were really have always been really difficult places to play. We have after this game, we've only won there twice since I think. Um, then it was a really this must have been Marquette's senior day. It was a really really vocal crowd, so it was a hard game to play. Um, I've referenced this game multiple times um, on the podcast as the game that gets you to the game because the, the next game, the following Saturday, was the one we had against Louisville for the undisputed Big East regular season champion. So if you don't win this game, you don't have that game, you know, the next weekend. Um, it has – there's like a – and again, I, so this is another great thing. It's talking about YouTubing games. Somebody finally put this whole game on YouTube like a month ago, and I did not know about it till this afternoon. I have the DVD, but I haven't seen it in years. But I got to watch the last like few minutes of regulation and overtime this afternoon. It was a fun trip down memory lane. The end of this game had everything. Um, there's this glorious like five minute sequence where they come back from commercial, and they're showing like the Marquette student section. And it was you know during the time when the big heads were a big thing, like those big yeah. cardboard heads. And in their infinite wisdom, they decided they would have a big head of Craig Escherich, which I find funny. Um, they're good tributes. Um, but it was like it was a voodoo thing because it happens like they show the Escherich head like right before the weird end sequence to the regulation in this game that Marquette ends up blowing the game. Um, this one, of course, is John Wallace gets fouled, shooting a three-pointer with 2.8 seconds left in Georgetown down three. He makes all three of the three of the free throws, including the third one after Marquette ice him. Um, and that that third free throw, by the way, hits the rim about five times before it goes down. Um, and Georgetown wins the game in overtime. But anyway, there's the Escherich head. There's the you know kind of inexplicable foul. Now it was a foul. Um, you know we got a lot of close calls that year, but this one was a foul. You know I'm an attendance guy, Bobby. I'm also a referee guy. Do you know who called the foul? There's only one answer it can be. Is it uh, John 
John Cal? It's definitely it, it was absolutely John Cal they called it. Yes. Like John <laughs> Cal gave us something wrong. Do you do you do you can you at least appreciate that I was able to guess that? Well there was only gonna be one answer, right? It wasn't gonna be like Wally Rutecki. Um, well, I, I guess I don't know. For some reason, I have I have Carl Hess in my head a lot. Yeah, man, that's that's a problem. You should get checked out. But um, <laughs> yeah, and so that that you know, that's a really exciting end to the game. Um, the whole overtime, I think, is a single possession game. It goes back and forth once or twice. Um, Marquette, like it's very similar to the end of the St. John's game this year. Marquette can, has like nine seconds to bring the ball up court, and Dominic James brings it up, and there's a weird exchange near half court they actually bring it's funny they bring in jeremiah rivers to defend the final possession um, which is actually a fairly common thing we did in close games that year um and he i don't know if he directly causes the turnover but he's certainly involved in the turnover well um, if you go back even further the year before he was in at the end of the unc game yeah you, you know like that yeah. going back you know if we want to talk about these these unusual circumstances, particularly transfers and relating to McClung. I know Chris Wright was, you know, got there, but Jeremiah Rivers had a role in this program. Oh yeah. He was, and he, a, he was yeah. severely missed when he, le- when, when he decided to take his talents to Bloomington. If you think about some of the close games from this era, right? So Jeremiah, as you said, he's in the final possession of regulation against UNC. Um, he is in Guarding Dominic James, it brings the ball up court in this game. In the overtime game against Syracuse, I think he's guarding Flynn. Flynn takes a, he's yeah. guarding Johnny Flynn. In the Villanova game that John Wallace wins with the free throws after the foul really far from the basket, Jeremiah Rivers is defending the drive that Villanova has that creates the turnover that gives Jonathan Wallace the ball. Like He got put in all the time to be like the, the stopper at the end of the game. See, and I know this is obviously the madness bracket, so it, these are these are wins. But this is what I think is most fun, interesting, productive from these brackets, right? It's not necessarily, oh, Georgetown won that game and Brandon Bowman had 12 points. It's this is this is what it is. It's going in and digging in deeper on how valuable Jeremiah Rivers was. <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's a little bit, yeah. No, it's just, it's, there's all these kinds of hidden things about these games that, and like about these seasons that are really fun to go back and reminisce about and like dig into. Okay. I would be remiss if I would be remiss if for this game I did not point out it is also the game that gave us Tom Crean and the Diet Pepsi. And so it was not the first or the last time Tom Crean gets shown gulping down a Diet Pepsi in lieu of actually coaching, but it's a particularly funny image immediately after John Wallace gets fouled, like almost the next cut is to Crean just sucking down a Diet Pepsi. Classic so, Crean, anyway. Okay, so part of me, when Georgetown kept winning those close games that year, was sort of, you know, wondering, okay, look, you don't have Jeff Green. Are you on borrowed time? Right? Yeah, I, I've talked about, you know, my part of me is a little overrated. But part of me was thinking, you know what? This is just what good programs do. They just find a way to win, right? And you're coming off the Final Four. Most of your players know what it's like to win a Big East, a Big East tournament, a regional. You're you're, you're playing a Final Four. So, so, you know, it's basically when you look back at it, you can always kind of say, well, because they lost to Davidson eventually that year, you can look back and say, well, they just had so many close calls. But if they win that game and get to the Elite Eight, you just look back at the season and say, 
this is just what good teams do. They just they just yeah. pull it out in the end. Um, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll say this about the 2018. They were in a lot of close games that year, right? I mean, but when you think, when you go back and dig into how they won all those close games and who made the big play and who made the big shot, you just go through the games. UConn that year, it was Roy Hibbert making the three. Syracuse, it's Jeremiah Rivers defending Johnny Flynn. Uh, West Virginia. Jesse well, and Sapp even even before that, you had Jesse Sapp with a big steal and um, layup. Yeah. yeah, at West Virginia, Jesse Sapp makes the game-winning three. Patrick Ewing gets the game-winning block. Um, Villanova, Jonathan Wallace makes the free throws. In this game, Jonathan Wallace makes the free throws again. Louisville, Dewan Summers makes the game-winning three. It's pretty much every person on the main part of the roster, save like Austin Freeman, that has a game-winning play at some point in this year. And it says a lot about the experience level of that team and the versatility that they could do that. Right. And that season, Austin Freeman was playing the role of really talented freshman on a super experienced team that, you know, like, you know, Freeman, you're like, wow, this is what a McDonald's All-American recruits like, huh? Like, this is this is great. Um, We didn't really redshirt guys, but like that's sort of. In the same way that Jay Wright can get away with redshirting some good four and five star even talent because he's got so much uh, on his roster, like you could afford to have Austin Freeman like start, but not really be relied upon as a you know McDonald's yeah. All American or Jordan All American freshman because you had so much else on the roster. Right, and just you know the fact that you've got Patrick Ewing Jr. who's totally cool with his role. Yep. yep. Right. Yeah. Um, so in oh. going back to the Ohio State game, I'll say this about that. After you just squeak out a win against Greg McDermott and yeah. Northern Iowa, you sort of felt like, okay, well, look, this, you know, two seeds usually make it to the Sweet 16, this and that. And for what Georgetown came out and just did to them with their style of play, with their guys, that was just unbelievable for a, a school that hadn't been to the tournament since 2001. Now in that moment and the, you know, the, the season ends in the next round, they lose to the eventual champs, Florida, although they gave Florida a better game than anyone did in their two years of back-to-back tournaments. Right. But I remember in that moment being like, okay, Georgetown's gone through a little bit of a bump here where they don't always make the tournament, but when they do go to, and it seems crazy to say this because of what the narrative currently is, but at that time, it was like, look, you know, Georgetown doesn't always make the tournament, but when they do, they get to the second weekend, right? So yeah. 95, they'd gotten to the Sweet 16. 96, they got to the Elite Eight. Okay, 97, they lose in the first round. John Thompson Jr., I think that might have been only his first or second ever opening round loss. They don't make the tournament again until 01. They go to the Sweet 16. And then here you are in 06, and you go back to the Sweet 16. So, you do. what's that? Yes, yes, you do. So you know, in four of your of four of your last five tournaments, and then you when you, and then when you when you throw in 07, you know, out of six tournaments, they had five they had gotten to the second weekend, and you know, in between there was a lot of NITs and a couple. You know, there was at least, there was two missed tournaments. One because you didn't want to go to NIT. One because you weren't eligible. But at that point, Georgetown was what you would consider a savvy tournament team. Like they get to the second weekend. Yeah. So uh, th- with three different coaches, no less. Right. 
Um, so um, for me, for me, I went with the Ohio State because that was like Georgetown's yeah. back. And even though they don't, you know, they don't go to the Final Four or whatever, you could sort of tell it was coming, right? You could tell like this is a group. That if everyone comes back, which they did, or I'm sorry, yeah. the players that were eligible to come back, like you're like this is this is going to be a problem next year, and it was. Yeah. Um, it, this is when Georgetown, I think 2006, I mean, you know, we always had some Princeton principals the entire time JT3 was at Georgetown. But I think 2006 was really the last year we were running like the OG, like proto, like Pete Carrill, like full on Princeton offense, right? We started doing some variations, the personnel changed a little bit, saw some different looks, but this was still like some OG. When you yeah. watch like the sets we're running, it's like, oh my gosh, this could be an Ivy League team running these sets. Um, and it, when it works well, it just It's beautiful. Works. Beautiful. It like early enough in JT3's tenure where it still hadn't really been figured out too much. Yeah. So, like, you, you, could, you could have games like this where just, you know, there was a size mismatch. I mean, that Ohio State game, Ohio State team was a little small. Um, so, Hibbert was able to have something out of his way. But sometimes, like, the Duke game that year and some other ones, it just works. And it's beautiful. Um, yeah. This game is really significant, I think, for reasons other than the box score. I think, you know, we, you know the idea of, of this being the you know, weekend that got us back into the tournament after five years. Um, as we mentioned, I did not go to this uh, NCAA side. I was home in Florida. Unbelievable. On, on, on school break, yeah. My wife went. Um, so I asked her this afternoon, hey, like, what do you remember about going to Dayton? Um, so she was telling me some stuff she said the first thing out of her mouth was and she like kind of paused in the middle of the sentence was well you know everybody was just excited to be in Dayton like it was like almost like like yeah like we get to do this like this is fun you know the the class of 2005 was the first class at Georgetown since like I think it was the Ford administration like the mid-70s like the Ford or the Nixon administration to not have an NCAA tournament appearance. We hadn't made it between 02 and 05. So that was a big deal. And my wife is class of 06. And it was a really, really big deal to that group of student fans. Like, you know, this is the same year as the Duke game. I mentioned this is really like the peak of Georgetown basketball being back as a thing for students to follow and pay attention to. And so the idea that we made it to the tournament, not only did we make it to the tournament, we just ran through some of Georgetown's appearances in the tournament. We haven't been since 2001. 2006 was probably the first time since 1996 that we played at a site that was realistically reachable for students. Like, yeah, what, like a box. In 01, were they in Boise and then Anaheim? Yeah, Boise and Anaheim. I think 97, they were in Tucson. So it's yeah. been 10 years since you could have really realistically gone unless you were, you know, you had some money or you happened to live like in the general area where that game was being held. So, you know, 2001, I mean, nobody went to Boise. Yeah, you know, I was a freshman that year. Um, so it was a big deal. This was also the first year, a little in the weeds, but um, at the end of the previous school year, the athletic direct, the athletic department, I guess, it kind of stepped in and kind of forced a leadership change in Hoya Blue, a student like fan organization. And so there was a new group of people running it and they were super enthusiastic and they, they had, you know, they had been doing like four or five road trips already that year, which is not really a thing they had done much in the previous years. So this is sort of a natural continuation of that um, with a group of people that had sort of grown up that year going on road trips together. And my wife talked for like 15 minutes about 
just how cool that trip was. She said, I barely remember anything about the actual game. But I just remember like it was really fun to go to Dayton and it was really fun to be at that game. It was fun that we got to make the tournament for once. Um, it was really significant. That may also be like 2001 in Boise is kind of well known as like a really fun regional because all the games were close and there were upsets. But yeah, were some games in Dayton that year, man. We mentioned, you know, Georgetown and you and I and Greg McDermott. Um, you know, <laughs> my wife said that um, prior to Ohio State's first round game, the fans from their opponents came up to Georgetown fans and said, hey, you want to make a deal? We'll, you know, if you root for us, beat Ohio State, we'll root for you in your game later this afternoon. And I guess we told them to go to hell. Like, we're not rooting for you. We don't care. Of course, that was Davidson. Um, so they were there, too. Um, but the other side of that regional is George Mason. Oh, yeah. On their run to the Final Four, they beat Michigan State in the first round, and they beat uh, North Carolina in the second round. My wife and, then they actually, got, and then they got to come home. They did, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the eighth team in that region was, it was Murray State. You know, coached Murray State. Uh, I can't Cronin. wait to find out. It's Cronin. Oh, that's right. He was there. Yeah. This he is what was got there Cronin the Cincinnati job. Yeah. You know what I think too, when you talk about locations of the tournament, I think the Georgetown fan base really needed. So the last time the Hoyas were in, they were a four seed, which usually kind of has you in a good spot and instead they got sent to portland so all the fans and i'm not sure based on what you say you're more in tune with the alumni i am not in tune with the alumni after 2013 everybody you know you said everybody was losing their mind and they were so pissed you know blah blah blah. i feel if those fans had gone back i think that group could have really used the ability to watch Georgetown beat Eastern Washington in person. Yeah. I mean, there's something, there's something about you know? it, right? There's nothing, there's nothing like going to an NCAA tournament game. Like the atmosphere is just different. Like the camaraderie, like the way, you know, because you get used to like going to home games and sitting with the same people you always sit with. But the notion of like, you know, then packing all the fans from each school, like in sort of defined sections, getting to go to like, events outside the arena and in the city you know having that day off in between games if you make it to the second round to go hang out and do stuff like it really you know if you're a fan and you haven't gone to ncaa tournament games you should do it um i've been to a bunch i i wish i had gone to dayton but like it's the kind of stuff you know particularly if you're a student you will remember that stuff for years and years and years hey Um, speaking of that were you at the because i didn't i've got i didn't go to a whole lot of um Hoya events or Hoop Club events, but in 2010 I did go. I feel like there was an event at Trinity. Mm-hmm. There was a bar or something. I and I, I I went to the first double header, so it must have been in between. There was an yeah. event. I'm not sure if you were. Yeah, at I that. stopped by. Yeah, I stopped by. I'd, I'd driven up to Providence actually, so I got to Providence sometime in like the mid afternoon. I remember I was listening to the Villanova game on the radio on the way up, so I probably got there in between the sessions. But yeah, I stopped by. Okay. Yeah. So it's, I don't it's like it. Go ahead. I don't think speaking of stopping by, I don't think Howie's gonna stop by before we close yeah. this out. Um so by the way, I you know, I, I didn't go to the Ohio State game, but I've heard so many stories about that trip. I couldn't not vote for Ohio State here. As much as I love that Marquette game. 
Oh yeah, it's definitely. And, and seriously, go go YouTube the Marquette game. It's on there right now. I remember at one point back when iPods were like a cool thing and like a video iPod. <laughs> you could you could buy games like it wasn't the oh, whole man. game. And on my video iPod, like in 2006, I had highlights from Georgetown, Northern Iowa, Georgetown, Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Might have been like the next year. I have no idea what happened to that property. It's probably on some old computer okay. of mine. Um, nice. <laughs> so, so because of the technology, because I, well, I, I was at home in Florida for the Ohio State game. I was watching it on whatever technology my parents have. I have this game on VHS. Which is, I actually might make that one of my artifacts of the day. I might go up and find the VHS tape of the Ohio State game. You know, I have a, if I ever get motivated and figure out how to do it, and assuming that the uh, the magnetic uh, technology on that film strip hasn't, you know, fallen apart, I have a ton of Georgetown games on VHS. Yeah. Ranging from probably like 88 to... I don't know, mid two thousands. You should convince Andrew. You should then convince Casual that we should do a like a live game thread of an actually like decent game for once. How I do we do that? We just him. like what? I like so we have like we both for... have it on. <laughs> well, I think he, everybody blames him for doing the live recap of the live game thread of like the Ohio State Final Four game, like for Georgetown's decline. Like, why don't we just do a good game? <laughs> Well, I mean, what are you supposed to do? Are you not supposed to do a live thing for that? I mean, come on. (laughs) No, like, I mean, we did it after the fact. I think it's some sort of weird exorcism. We should take whatever game, whatever game wins the delusional bracket, we should do that live. I mean, I might as well just get the Duke VHS tape out and do that live. But yeah. I guess my question are, like, is there any sort of, like, actual, like, what are the copyright laws or, you know, restrictions? Oh, well, he was just doing a threat. I don't think he was, like, like simulcasting it or like doing a YouTube thing of it or anything. Right. But I'm talking like, let's say ideally like me, you and Andrew, Howie, whoever we're sitting there and we're just providing like a lot, like in-game commentary as it's happening. (laughs) Oh man. Well, first of all, we need somebody with like a little cathode ray TV or whatever to use the VHS player, but um, there's gotta be a way to get that stuff up. Yeah. So, did we, we did we do this? Did we did we end on a good enough note here? I feel we like did, we tried, and last I, week. we tried to end on a positive note, and then Mac McClung transferred. So I think this like this week, I don't know, like I might even have a more positive note. or something. So the way that we record these things, if if you've been listening, you notice that the podcasts are going way longer than normal. Well, that's because we've been allowed to based on the platform we're using. I believe at the end of the month, it's going back to like 45 minute max. Okay. So unless someone in the casual La Jolla family decides to pony up to make the ability to last longer on here um, in terms of more than 45 minutes, these podcasts might be shortening in the near future. I don't think anybody's going to be exactly sad. They don't have to listen to me for an hour and 20 minutes. Well, that's what I, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying we can, it's an even happier note possibly. (laughs) I definitely won't be sad. Oh Oh, my God. I cannot believe we talked long enough. (laughs) Did you murder the bear? What what did I miss? Can I, 
Can I do some hot takes? Can I get a lightning round? Can Howie, I get the I rapid fire question? <laughs> I don't want to alarm you, Howie, but Patrick Ewing's statement that Mac McClung was returning has turned out to be less than completely true. <sighs> um, we decided that Georgetown Ohio State was the better win over Marquette, and, and I believe we were... that was that's a no-brainer. Okay, and then um, I think Howie went South Florida, or no, sorry, Howie John went went South Florida, and or no, I went South Florida, and John went Connecticut. I'm only from that's South that. Florida. I did not pick the Bulls. Got it. It's got to be Connecticut. That that yeah. Really? JT three first year Big East. Yeah. That's, to, to me, that's also a no brainer because that South Florida loss was was terrible because we didn't we we weren't really in the habit of losing to South Florida at that point. Uh, this is the Dominique Jones game. I, I mean, is. it was a, it was a tough loss in the middle of the season, but that. That loss, JT3's first year. So remember, we ended the regular season. It looked like we were a tournament team after big wins against Notre Dame at Pittsburgh, and we were excited. Then we finished the regular season losing five games in a row. And then we had, you know, a little, little bit of a run in the Big East tournament and expected to get blown out by UConn. Instead, that game started with a Brandon Bowman reverse dunk. Everybody was fired up. We found ourselves down two with under 10 seconds to go. And I, was, I will never forget when we settled for that Ashani Cook deep jumper instead of passing it to Jeff Green at the top of the key for a wide open three. And if we win that game, we go to the tournament in JD3's first year. I screen grabbed that and, play, actually. And we would have played in the garden on a Friday night. Yeah. Always now, I did that. factor that in, but my going South Florida was just at that point, you're thinking, is Georgetown a one seed, right? Like, at that point, you know, you've you've beaten Duke again. You're ranked in the top ten. Why not? So, I mean, on the other hand, they ended up with a three seed, so it didn't fall that far. Yeah, but that was probably one of the more overseeded threes, and we saw what happened. Well, yeah. I mean, what were they, like 10 and 8 in the Big East? <laughs> you know I mean? True. And I, uh, absolutely, I I would watch you know the last dance on the 2010 team, no questions. FS1, get on this. Well, Is that when that was, what was this? This was a 2010 loss. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I that. Yeah. I don't know what I mean. In next week, in next week's edition of of this terrible show, we can talk about yeah. whether the whether the one and a half years of the McClung Akinjo relationship was better or worse than the Jesse Sapp Chris Wright relationship. Ooh, yeah, get that game up there. Yes. Well, based on the fact that one of the years they played together, the team won the regular season, even though Chris Wright didn't play. I think you're going to have to give it to to sap and write um don't don't dare me to talk about it for the next hour though because i think we need to go <laughs> no i gotta get out of here too besides i think how he's gonna do an autopsy on a bear 
I mean, to be to be fair, Mac was Mac was Mac was injured for a big chunk of both seasons, and uh, Chris Wright was also injured. And when they did play together, we lost in the tournament. Chris Wright and Jesse Sapp, and the following year, and then we didn't go to the tournament. There are lots of similarities. <laughs> there are. All well, right, if you've made it this far into the marathon, which is every Monday marathon, boys <laughs> podcast, I want to thank you. Please, please give us a rating, subscribe, all that stuff. And if you hate the sadness bracket, make sure to let me know because there's nothing I like more than hearing about that on Twitter. At Bobby Bancroft on Twitter. <laughs> you got Howie. me on Twitter? Howie, I hate you. <laughs> Love you guys. <laughs> All, right, All right, I'll see you. RIP Fred Willard.